0: Hi, and welcome to the Full Bloom Project, a body positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary
1: experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self help books into accessible
0: and digestible daily parenting practices. Where your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: A quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional.
0: We'd like to just take a moment to thank our patrons who help us create resources for a diverse audience. If you're moved by our mission and find our work valuable, please consider becoming an official patron of the Full Bloom Project to keep this podcast going strong.
1: Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast, episode number 50. Hmm. Today we're talking about clean eating. What does that really mean? And we're talking with someone who's doing research on that question. Dr. Summon Abwani, an associate professor of
0: psychology at Dickinson College. Summon conducts research that informs policies related to dieting and thin promoting and fat-shaming socio-cultural environments so important. She also researches these behaviors, like clean eating and cleanses, to hopefully inform legislative efforts to regulate the sale and marketing of these products and plans. We're thrilled to have her here to talk about her research. Simon. welcome to the Full Bloom podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into your research, can you tell
2: us a little bit about your background and the work that you do? Sure. Um, My background and training is in clinical psychology, and I work as a faculty member at Dickinson College. And my research broadly focuses on the prevention and treatment of eating disorders. So on the treatment end of things, I've been working for several years with Professor Janet Treasure's team at King's College London on developing and testing guided self-help interventions for adults with anorexia nervosa. And through that work, we have really come to understand the key role that family members play in the recovery process and how absolutely essential it is to provide support for them so that they can, in turn, you know, best support their loved ones. And I've also learned a great deal through those clinical trials about how difficult it can be to make changes, even when you have good support And even when you really want to make a change, when you're sort of in the throes of illness. So that's sort of my research on the intervention side of things. And the other area of focus for my research involves prevention of eating disorders, and in particular, trying to understand the environmental factors that increase risk for disordered eating. For a long time, my work focused on individual-level factors, so trying to understand how things like personality and body dissatisfaction played a role in the development and maintenance of eating disorders. But then a few years ago, I read this really inspiring paper by Professor Bryn Austin at Striped, who made the argument that to really make meaningful, substantive change to reduce eating disorder risk at a population level... We need to start focusing on those environmental risk factors. So that was sort of my aha moment. And I realized, you know, she's completely right. Although we do have some really solid eating disorder prevention programs like the Body Project, uh, which are well supported by research evidence, you know, these programs are still somewhat limited in terms of how many people they can reach. So to reach more people, we need to think about scaling up and thinking about how to tackle and dismantle systems. So more recently, I've been thinking, you know, in my work with Striped, on how can we broadly address those systemic factors? So for instance, bringing attention to fads like, quote unquote, clean eating, or trying to incentivize companies to not digitally alter their ads, or trying to make it illegal to discriminate against people based on their size. So we have lots of these sorts of projects currently underway to try and think about how can we... Address these systems to try and make a change, and hopefully reduce eating disorder risk at more of a population level. It's
0: great. We've had Bren Austin on as well. She's fabulous, and just being a champion for um, you know us all, kind of tapping into our you know becoming activists, like in all of this. And I really appreciated her acknowledgement that it's not fair to put the burden of any of this change on one person. That we really it's the society and that perhaps we can all help change the society, change the culture. But this particular topic that you study as it pertains to clean eating is definitely a big part of why we're happy to have you here with us today. And last season we did dedicate an episode to orthorexia and we really wanted our listeners to have kind of just like a basic 101 on what orthorexia is because not everybody even knows that term. But we have you and I think more people probably know the
1: term clean eating than orthorexia.
0: Definitely. But given that clean eating could probably mean many different things to many different people, could we start just with your working definition of what that even means?
2: Yeah, you know, well, that's an excellent question, but also a really challenging one because there doesn't seem to be any real consensus as to what clean eating even means. So the answer really does seem to vary based on who you ask. You know, some people use the term to broadly mean eating whole foods and avoiding processed foods and avoiding foods with long ingredient lists. But others have much more restrictive interpretations. So, gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, those sorts of things. And others are based on dietary myths, such as the capability to, quote-unquote, alkalize or cleanse your body. So, you know, across all of these different definitions, to me, the common thread seems to be a generally positive impression of clean eating and the notion that it's something that's beneficial to everyone, not just folks who have restrictions due to, for example, celiac disease. So, My impression is that people see this as something that's natural and therefore healthy, and that's something that we've actually seen the food industry respond to with a prolific use of clean labels to describe food practices. So at Striped, we just completed a legal research study led by uh, Nicole Negoeti at Harvard Law School, where we found that there's a significant gap in terms of federal regulation of this language. And in fact, there's none. (laughs) So that's the gap. Well, and this is really worrying because I think this can contribute to an environment where unsupported claims about the health benefits of these so-called clean diets are rampant and can really serve to enhance the sort of cultural trend of food moralization and preoccupations mm-hmm. with healthfulness, and that could really cause some harm. So, you know, we, we have this paper currently under review, and we've made some recommendations, but until some action's taken, to be honest, it's a bit of a wild, wild west situation out there when it comes to clean eating. It can be used to describe a whole range of dietary behaviors.
1: Which makes us wonder, where are people getting their information about clean eating and cleanses from, and are those
2: sources reliable? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that the clean eating movement originally really seemed to sort of take off a few years ago through food bloggers and people who self-identified as wellness gurus who were promoting clean diets. And this really involved promoting certain types of foods and demonizing other kinds of foods, like an all-good or all-bad approach. And it really seemed to have an underlying moralizing and, I would say, an elitist element as well. So even this language of clean suggests that there's a dichotomy where other kinds of foods are deemed dirty. And, Mm -hmm. you know, why would anybody want to be dirty? (laughs) So the reason I say elitist is because there was also a sense of sort of privileging foods that are generally more expensive, like uh, Mm -hmm. fresh and organic fruits and vegetables. And disparaging more affordable, more accessible choices, even when they have similar nutritional profiles, like frozen or tinned vegetables. So I think that's sort of where it started. And right now, my impression is that clean eating messaging is promoted via magazines. In fact, there's a magazine by the same name. There are companies that advertise their foods as 100% clean. You've probably seen that messaging too. And uh, social media. So I actually just checked this morning and hashtag clean eating on Instagram has over 46 million posts. Mm -hmm. And probably more if we start looking at other variants of the term like hashtag clean diets and hashtag eat clean and so forth. You know, these are some of the different sources. But my impression is the proponents of clean eating generally don't seem to be very reputable sources. So the British Dietetic Association identified clean eating as their worst celebrity diet trend in 2017. And the National Eating Disorders Association warns about the dangers of clean eating and how it can devolve into disordered eating and weight control practices. So I tend to worry about the reliability of sources that blindly advocate for this very ambiguous trend. Oh, yeah,
0: I do too. And uh, we were going to ask, are there any potential risks to clean eating? But there's, it's so obvious, I think not even just to us, that there are. So I'm going to rephrase it as, what are the, the potential risks associated with clean eating and, and other variants like cleanses or following wellness trends? Because I think it's fair to sort of blanket those together. So talk to us about the risks.
2: Yes, absolutely. Well, clean eating's clearly having a moment. There was a study that came out last year that said that 38% of U.S. adults said that they'd been on a diet over the past year and the most common diet that they reported was clean eating. So this does seem to be something that's very much in vogue. But one problem I see is that although people are starting to recognize that dieting for weight loss can be harmful, so this message that dieting can increase risk for disordered eating and eating disorders does seem to be starting to get get out there, clean eating is often not specifically promoted for weight loss. So, you know, folks who might ordinarily not be vulnerable in terms of the potential risks for dieting might be willing to give clean eating a go as an ostensibly healthy behavior. They might think, you know, well, what's the harm here? But there was a study that came out in 2018. There was a, it was a systematic review that showed that even when kids followed medically prescribed diets, such as for chronic illnesses like diabetes and celiac disease, this still increased their risk for disordered eating and eating disorders. So there does seem to be some risk involved in dieting for health reasons, at least among youth. And I would say the other main concern I have with these sorts of wellness trends is, of course, the cultural messaging, where food is framed as clean or dirty, which to me, seems to promote a problematic environment where our young people learn a dichotomous way of thinking about food, that it's either good or bad, and that can set the stage for people to develop really difficult relationships with food, where they become preoccupied with what they see as healthy eating and start to experience feelings of guilt or shame when they don't adhere to those dietary rules, and then they perhaps start to avoid socializing with folks who don't follow the same sort of diet. And, well, you can start to see how it can devolve into what we would recognize as symptomatic of an eating disorder.
1: What's interesting to me, it's related, but there seems to be the clean eating trend seems to be very much prevalent on social media. And I see, you know, that people become identified with it, you know, that this is, this is their way of, of eating more so than maybe in pre-social media world like not everyone might know Mm -hmm. not all of your friends might know that you are gluten-free or whatever but in this day and age especially with with kids you know because they're they're just using it so much there's this new identity that's formed around it that is like popular you know that's getting Mm -hmm. that's getting positive reinforcement on their social media handles and then it's and then what do you do? You're in an extra dilemma, which is you've identified with this, yet it's starting to cause problems for you. But, you know, psychologically, do you just think that the problems are
0: somewhere else? You know, that it's just too hard to let go of it once it's begun. Well, it's like that elevation of, well, status. I mean, I think you alluded to it when you were talking about morality, because certainly clean versus dirty and I know we do see a lot of kind of clean foods, like you said they are they tend to be more expensive and less accessible to certain socioeconomic backgrounds, and oftentimes like I, mean, I, I feel like there's a kind of racist component to it as well because there there are definitely foods that are kind of culturally specific to different ethnic groups that would definitely be deemed quote dirty because they're certainly not cleaned and yet they're they're important parts of cultures and and talk about identity but There is this this, like easy way to elevate yourself in society right now. And maybe kids, tweens, teens aren't even aware of it, but that if you can kind of jump on the hashtag clean eating bandwagon, you get to kind of, you know, assume that goop identity. That's
2: right. Well, there's a huge amount of privilege. I think you hit the nail on the head with that, that this is a thing of privilege as well to be able to identify with clean eating. And, and to your point about social media, this makes me think about we recently completed a study, it's, it's actually currently under review, where we asked over a 1,000 U.S. youth via text message whether they had heard of clean eating, and if so, where had they heard about it. We found that over half of them were familiar with the term, and the most common source of information was identified as social media. So mm-hmm. close to half who were familiar with clean eating said they had heard about it through social media, in particular Instagram. So that does seem to be a really important thing for us to be thinking and talking about about where are they getting this information from, and you know the questionable reliability of these sources. Absolutely.
1: I mean i'm I'm recalling that the last time we talked about this topic, orthorexia was also around the time when there was a, that statistic that came out around. A certain percentage—I'm forgetting it now—of ninety percent of of health information on social media is false. Ninety percent, I think. Um, and just like that, confounded with that is where our kids are getting their information, and most of it mm. is not reliable. Is is kind of scary as a parent, um, which I think I you know because we're talking to parents, and because parents are all swimming in this cultural clean eating soup as well. What do, you, what do you want them to know as parents about clean eating? And what would you want them to know if their child starts to have this focus, this conversation, this choosing Preference. of foods based yeah. on just, I'm just want to try eating clean?
2: You know, I think there's probably a few different things that it would be good for parents to know. So, Probably, first of all, I'd want them to be aware of these potential risks of clean eating, that what can look like healthy behavior has the potential to tip into the realm of unhealthy behavior, particularly in this broader context of diet culture. So although we want kids to follow nutritious diets, we don't want them to think that they are bad or dirty or feel ashamed when they eat something that isn't marketed as clean. We want them to be able to continue to maintain flexibility in their approach toward food. So maybe thinking there are always foods and there are sometimes foods, but not that there's inherently good or bad foods per se. So I think it'd be great if parents could be trying to move away from rigid food rules and making sure that they're uh, avoiding those. I think it's also sort of related to that, To important to not demonize processed foods because processing food serves lots of different functions, including ensuring food safety. And sometimes processed foods may be all that someone can access. So we really need to avoid spreading misinformation when it comes to nutrition. The last thing I think probably I would really want your listeners to be thinking about is I would like to put in a plug for promoting intuitive eating. Mm-hmm. your listeners I'm sure are aware of this but for those who aren't this is an approach that teaches folks to pay attention to their body's cues and reduces dietary restriction and it's not something that I'm an expert in but I would really encourage your listeners to learn more from those who are like Christy Harrison who does excellent work on the topic and has a great new book on the subject as well.
1: Yes that book is amazing.
2: <laughs>
0: yes it is we we had Christy on a, a couple months ago and Definitely, her book is is it's fabulous. I mean, we were we were talking today, Leslie and I, actually, about how it's it's accessible but a little bit dense, and we're appreciating just as busy parents, like it's so hard. To, it's partly why we designed this podcast to be so short and pithy, because who's got time to read a a, a tome? But it really is a, a critical book and a wonderful edition, and and we couldn't agree with you more in terms of you know, helping our listeners understand that clean eating, it's not to say that, you know, if you're raising intuitive eaters at home, there's no reason to believe that they wouldn't eat stereotypically, quote, clean foods. And I put the quotes because I was just telling Leslie, like, I'm pregnant right now. And I particularly been enjoying eating like, crunchy, like snow, snap peas and celery, like they've been very, it's exactly what I want. But most of the time, I'm Definitely gravitating towards like pizza and grilled cheese and like an intuitive eating approach. Of course, we want people to understand that that's actually a great way to promote very balanced eating and a, and plenty of quote nutritious foods. But but this is ugh, this is a tough one because it's it feels almost like as amorphous uh, as it is to define what clean eating is, it doesn't seem to be that vague when it comes to sort of what it means or what it conjures or what the what the identity of eating clean is, right? Like the glowing skin and, you know, optimizing your organs. And I don't even mean to make fun of those things because there's nothing wrong with wanting the, that. But I'd love us to spend a little more time talking about just that dilemma and also sort of how how to think about that with our kids, how to protect our kids from kind of getting sucked into this very alluring, glowing kind of, you know, statusy type of
2: euphoria. Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. And, you know, I actually think that there is – perhaps starting to be some amount of awareness about this. I think that's quite encouraging. So the study that I mentioned with the youth, one thing that surprised me was that even though about three quarters of our respondents characterized clean eating as healthy, there was a subset of our participant pool that flagged it as unhealthy. And mm. about 18% of those respondents noted both Elements of healthfulness as well as harm. So somebody somehow is managing to get this messaging out there that's a much more nuanced understanding about what clean eating is and what it's not and what some potential risks are. So I think this could be a real opportunity here to use public health messaging to communicate that more balanced understanding about potential benefits as well as risks when it comes to the context of disordered eating.
1: When you think of, just because you're in academia and you're working on this side, when you say public health messaging, what do you
2: mean? So I'm thinking of how, for instance, we're training people who work in public health and training people who work in nutrition and having that sort of approach where they can then use the information that's this more nuanced, balanced understanding when they go out and share it in their clinical work or with mm-hmm. um, their own families, with their providers and so forth. So it's more about educating the public using these mechanisms that we have available to us, such as the training the providers, to deliver that message that is a more balanced message rather than a You know, this is unequivocally a healthful strategy and you should definitely do it.
0: I think that applies to getting that education out there into school communities. Uh, I've probably said it before, but I've been in so many different schools where it happens to be health week and there's like a poster promoting healthy eating, which is like, it's so well-meaning, but there's no mention of pleasure or satisfaction <laughs> or trust your body to Where all
1: foods fit. or all
0: foods fit I mean and this is I, I do think a little call to action for every parent listening to just you know see if if you if you just notice what kind of messaging is out there in your schools like to even see if you can help tweak them or email us and we'll help you help tweak them just because those little messages are so important and and that binary that comes from the good, bad, cl- you know, clean, dirty, it's even just this word healthy, healthy eating, it can very easily to a little young mind, it can be so literally interpreted. And I presented, we, we do a lot of presenting in schools and was at a preschool recently and uh, engaging teachers in conversation about this, which was wonderful that they were so receptive and and curious. And and some of the teachers of the fours class was saying that she hears from the kids from the four year olds comments about carbs and and sort of like an like they don't even know what they're talking about but there's a sort of sense of this is good food and this is bad food or I shouldn't have these snacks and and it's it just it starts so young and I think we we really have to take your advice and apply it in all the different kind of grassroots way we can.
2: That's right. Well, and so much of what you're describing also really focuses on what we think about in terms of physical nourishment and is not attending to nourishment in the terms of what's going on psychologically, right? So nutrition isn't just about feeling physically nourished. It's also about feeling psychologically nourished and feeling alert and energetic and satisfied and sustained throughout the day, right? All of these things need to be part of that story.
1: Absolutely. What um? What else did you, is there anything else that you would want to share from your findings of your most recent, the, the paper that you're referring to and that work?
2: Mm, I think probably the main takeaways for me were these two points having to do with social media being really a key source of information and the fact that you know, a lot of the youth are aware of clean eating. And in fact, when we ask them to define clean eating, they're defining it in the way that I mentioned, that the concept is really muddled, right? So they're also offering really heterogeneous definitions for what Mm. clean eating means to them. So even among that sample, they don't really have a good sense of it, but they have the impression that it's healthy. You know, we really need to cultivate that that small group of folks who are identifying that, well, maybe it's not ideal for some reasons, and let's think about what could be some potential harms and risks associated with that, too.
0: I I was just going to say, I really like the idea of, again, how how in real life this, this happens, you know, whether it's just like with your kid at the dinner table. I don't know if they'll be willing to engage, but I like the idea of making sure that we're always talking about one of those risks being the way this oppresses other people or the way that it doesn't really teach your kids equality. Like that, you know, I find that we have a lot of encounters, whether it's in our private practices or in parent talks, like where there's this kind of progressive spirit, (laughs) you know, certainly here in New York City, and there's a lot of sort of social justice ideas at the forefront of their minds in certain respects. But then when it comes to, the, I think the big hot topics are always like weight stigma, fat phobia, like kind of struggling with the concept of size diversity. And also this one where, you know, it, it's you, you start to sort of, you don't want to argue with someone that, oh no, well, you should take your kid to McDonald's. It's good for them. And at the same time, I do sometimes find myself, trying to make that claim, but it's not because it's so important that they have the nutritional benefit of a chicken nugget so much as, you know, if you want to teach your children inclusivity and, and, and about sort of what it means to go into even another culture and not feel better than it, in a way using food as a way to sort of ensure that you're, you're walking the walk, right? is important, but it's a nuance that I
2: I don't know that we talk about enough. Hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, even among our respondents, there were a fair number that were making comments like, I think clean eating is healthy if you can afford it. So there was this recognition that it's not going to be something that many people can access or do. So having conversations where we're really thinking carefully about how do we communicate that, how do we talk about that, how is this an issue of privilege, how is it a social justice issue in many
1: ways as well? Right. And how does it fit back into the bigger picture of like social determinants of health? One of the things that I'm reflecting on as we talk is in your work on kind of the the bigger scale um, and the review that you mentioned you recently did, that doesn't really connect to social media. I, I wonder, is there is there a solution to the fact that that this movement may have come from social media? And so Mm. it's popular, but there's really no fact checking around it on social media yet, you know, in our society, our companies are seeing it's popular. And so they're putting it, they're kind of boosting its prevalence by putting these terms on there, 100% clean or whatever the things that that we're, we're thinking maybe we do have some level of regulation about p- potentially if we were able to pass it legislatively and, and even enact regulations and then actually follow through with them. But I'm just kind of wondering out loud with you, does that do anything to the bigger problem of this is on social media, it's being perpet- kind of perpetrated by social media, and there's really no checks and balances for social media?
2: I think that potentially the way to intervene is through calling attention to this, and one way to do that is by having tighter regulations. So, Mm -hmm. for instance, if we take the example of diet pills and muscle building supplements, this is something that they're trying in Massachusetts to ban the sale of these products to minors. And currently, one of the ways in which messaging about this was communicated to youth was through social media. And recently we saw um, two popular social media platforms say that that kind of advertising is no longer going to be permitted on those platforms. And that generated, I think, a lot of interest and discussion. So even people who weren't necessarily seeing those ads on social media perhaps became aware of this as a thing to be thinking about. So I imagine that there may be a parallel here where if we are able to increase and tighten the regulations around how clean labels are used, for instance, that might have a trickle-down effect where it's raising greater public awareness about this as an issue and perhaps in that way trickling down to the young people as well. I mean, ideally, of course, you'd want to see it change in social media since that's one of the ways in which this message is highly communicated.
1: Yeah, and I guess one of the One of the kind of curiosities I have is who are some of the main influencers that are elevating this behavior, let's say, and how can you make those sources more reliable, right? Is that that an in? Is that an in to critically educate the influencers to be able to say, well, this is just because there's anecdotal experience of this for a short period of time without follow-up that doesn't mean that this is helpful at all and in fact it could mean that it's very harmful down the line and we need to be really careful of making claims that are unreliable I don't know if there's any way but maybe that's a target Mm -hmm. a target that could happen where yeah my
0: my fantasy as I was sitting here was it would be cool if if Facebook, I guess, owns Instagram, if they could sort of make this, like, decree that if you're going to use these this list of hashtags, that along with the hashtag comes, like, an, a warning label, <laughs> you know, because we don't need to shut people down for, you know, I think there's a lot of sort of, like you were saying, wellness gurus that have had some personal success or, you know, sort of some sort of wonderful experience that they want to share with others and then maybe even then start to make their livings this way. And I don't think that this is about trying to deprive those people of their uh, freedom of speech or right to like monetize, uh, you know, make make a living. But it's more, I feel like increasingly it's just about informed consent with a lot of this stuff and to just understand that there's always risks. And yeah, it's questionable that this like wild west of social media, there's literally nothing that can kind of separate invention from science. And I, you know, it's it's a big, it's certainly a bigger discussion.
1: I guess. And then on back on the individual scale, you know, from the macro back to the micro as parents, what can we do but teach our children to be you know, very careful consumers of information Mm -hmm. and when when a child comes to the table and says, I'm going to start eating clean or I want to go on this cleanse, you know, that we we help them ask better
2: questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's starting to be some work on social media literacy and Mm -hmm. I think on a more individual level, those could be really impactful programs as well. So, you know, one of the things that we're interested in thinking about, the stu- the legal study that we did focused on opportunities for regulation at the mm-hmm. Food and Drug Administration level. So we didn't look at advertising, which is through the Federal Trade Commission, that's who regulates advertising. But there's a real potential for us to scrutinize advertising, particularly influencer-based advertising. There's not a lot of work currently on examining how people trust influencers when it comes to advertising versus other sort of more traditional sorts of ads. And that's actually something that we're getting ready to do a study on.
0: That's great. And it's also a reminder that this is like a newer... A newer dimension of things. Social media is relatively new phenomenon. So we could, we could uh, easily talk to you for another half hour, but I think we'll, we'll wrap up and, uh, ask you our, our closing question, which is just if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, one specific thing, what would you recommend they do to help their child fully bloom?
2: Oh, that is such a great question. And, uh, I realize that my answer might sound a bit facetious, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that's mm-hmm. you know, go to therapy. We uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we all we, hey, all we, we, we don't her,
0: mind that answer. <laughs> we didn't tell her to say that. We didn't say her We didn't tell her to say that.
2: <laughs> well, you know, we all tend to have lots of our own stuff and this translates into how we interact with others. So For instance, if we struggle with food and our bodies ourselves, that's going to make it really difficult to support a young person to develop a healthy relationship with Mm -hmm. themselves. And, you know, if there's one thing I've learned from the treatment research that I've been involved with, it's that caregivers need guidance and support to provide and promote well-being in their loved ones. Otherwise, it's so easy for them to get trapped into these cycles of, you know, accommodating or enabling behaviors or avoidance behaviors or even head-to-head battles or any number of other unproductive behaviors. And the relationship between a caregiver and their loved one is so key for the healing process. So honestly, I think the same thing applies if we think about wellness and prevention rather than treatment per se. Focus on learning and working on yourself in order to best support your child. You know, in, in in this case, I think the airplane analogy of fit the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help your child works. So go to therapy. Hmm.
0: Thank you for saying that because no one's given us that answer. We get a lot of the same answers. I think people have very similar approaches to the answer of this question. But I think that you're totally right. And there's, there's unfortunately, there's still a lot of stigma around Getting therapy, and sometimes people don't think that they have big enough problems to justify it. But it's very validating because everybody listening to this podcast has grown up in this culture, and everybody listening to this podcast ostensibly wants to do better by their kids. And so I think that's a wonderful permission to, to give that people should just check it out because there's always something to explore. What were you going to say? I just,
1: yeah, with an asterisk, which is that that does typically require finances. That's right. And we want to remind people that if you have health insurance, which some people don't, that typically there is behavioral health now Mm -hmm. and that you can have that covered by your insurance. But there are also a lot of community centers Mm -hmm. that offer... Therapy for free, or for a very very low fee, without without having to use your insurance necessarily.
2: So, and university um, clinics have often a sliding scale available in their uh, clinics for uh, community members. So where it's graduate students delivering services, often those are on a sliding scale. So there certainly mm-hmm. would be ways to access therapy for
0: yeah yeah, and, and institutes as well. Like those are sometimes little untapped resources because. General population doesn't always know about psychoanalytic training institutes or any kind of institute training. That even if you're not looking for psychoanalysis, that those places do tend to have training students that are very well supervised and also offer um, sliding scale fees.
1: Yeah. So if anyone's listening and having trouble, yeah, reach out. Yeah, yeah, reach out. We love helping. So anyway, thank you so much for your time and especially thank you so much for dedicating your life's work to doing the work that you're doing.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: So, I'm thinking after talking about this just about a, you know, my my daughters when they get older, even now like what if they start talking about clean eating, they haven't yet, but I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. I think it maybe starts with healthy, or maybe by the time they're, you know, in the next couple of years, given this trend, it will be clean before healthy. But really, just being a curious questioner of of not like a questioner, like skeptical of them, but just curious about what they're taking that to mean Mm -hmm. you know I'm thinking about all the parents maybe that are listening and like oh yeah that's that's my child is starting to say these things how do I deal with it and just kind of pulling up to the table and teach critical thinking Mm -hmm. and social media literacy to your children just by modeling good questions yeah, so I think I'm thinking about that right now. What are mm-hmm. you thinking about? I'm thinking just
0: about the need to continue exposing our kids to the quote, dirty foods. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I've noticed that since we started this project, I don't think I've ever had leanings towards that kind of clean eating. I think I've probably worked in eating disorder treatment too long to, I mean, I just, I guess I've known better. But I have noticed that since we've gotten started, I do find myself wanting to bring in foods that have sort of been a bit more stigmatized and maybe even foods that I was like turning my nose up at, not because of any kind of identification with the clean eating movement, but rather just because I was judging them. And I don't mean to say that We shouldn't keep certain foods out of our houses if we want to. Like I don't think that's a problem. But I I think when I bring them in, it's less about sort of like exposure to the food itself. That's part of it too. But I guess I'm noticing that there's this urge that I have to raise my kids in a way that they don't – they're not going to judge someone else for eating this way or assume (laughs) that somebody that comes from an environment that eats that – you know, is sort of like lesser than them. You know, that doesn't mean that that has to be done all the time. But I do think it's sort of an added level to the sort of food um, exposure and sort of bringing fun foods or play foods into your home. I think it's sort of another reason to even bringing in fast foods if they're sort of not part of your kind of like day to day. Not just so that there's no moralizing around the food, but that this deeper element of moralizing around character or class that we can kind of use food as a way in to plant those roots or rather plant those seeds in our kids.
1: Yeah, it was a wonderful conversation and I feel like I want to be extra compassionate for someone who's listening that has recently done a cleanse or is trying to eat clean. And I, I hope that this conversation was interesting and that maybe there will be a little bit more questioning of, well, what am I doing this for? Um, and if I think it's for health reasons, maybe you could look at a little more critically at the research, not, you know, social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's... <laughs> really, really easy to see a fad and think it works because mm-hmm. it's a fad. And I do think that clean eating is a fad. It's just something that we're experiencing right now in our mm-hmm. time, you know, our our parents' time, it was X and, mm-hmm. you know, and this is something that's happening right now in our society. And but- when, when the researchers look at it, they don't, they don't see good things for it.
0: I think it's a slightly more dangerous fad in that there is this sort of elevation element that we were talking about that I think of, and maybe these are just my own associations, but I think of like Jenny Craig or you know Weight Watchers or Slim Fast or old fads, right? And how those, I mean, yes, if you are from a very low socioeconomic background, you may not be able to access that. But those diet fads, I feel like, cut across all classes, socioeconomic classes anyway. And I feel like the clean eating, it's sort of – it's associated with this sort of elevated status in a way that I don't know that past fads have been, at least not in my opinion. And I think that that kind of makes it maybe, one, harder to call out as a fad, even though we're totally doing that today – But two, it just feels riskier because it's sort of putting forth, well, if you can do this, like, you can be like Gwyneth Paltrow, too. (laughs) Like, it's elevating in a way that kind of brings with it this fantasy that you could also sort of enjoy this privilege and status. And it just makes me extra cautious. But we'll see. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. So that's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode, so please do send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really
1: appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts so more people can
0: find the podcast. And consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue producing and delivering this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time
1: for more body positive parenting wisdom.